Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. MWC Church Podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. Amen. So, hey, let me tell you this story. On May 1st, it's not a happy story, but it's a, it's a good story. On May 1st, in 1915, the Lusiana, it was a ship was departing New York City and heading over to Liverpool, England. It would frequently make this, this voyage. It would, it would be a seven-day journey to go from New York City all the way to England, Liverpool specifically. And almost 2,000 people on May 1st, 1915, boarded this ship, including 95 children and 39 infants. And it was an amazing ship. It was fast. It was, it was one of the fastest cruise liners out there. It was fast, it was comfortable, it was luxurious, and it was definitely a ship that was beloved by the masses. But this voyage would be its last. The ship, before, days before, weeks before it left New York City, the Imperial German Embassy placed an ad in over 50 newspapers, American newspapers, including some in New York City itself, the place where it was ported, and it said this, and I got a copy of it, I want to show it to you this morning. It says this, notice travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded, so the Atlantic from New York, you're crossing the Atlantic all the way to Liverpool, England, intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies. He's ta- they're talking about World War I. This is during World War I. That the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles that in accordance with formal notice given by the imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., April 22nd, 1915. Despite that ad, people embarked on the Lusiana, and you can still watch the film of the ship leaving port and waving excitedly at the people that are filming them. It was his last voyage, because on May 7th, near the end of her 202nd crossing of the Atlantic Ocean, a German U-boat spotted the ship, and at 700-meter range, gave the order to launch one torpedo, one torpedo, hit the Lusiana, and within 15 minutes, it had sunk, taking with it the lives of over 1,900 people. Why do I bring up that story this morning? Because whenever you enter a war zone, even if you're on a luxurious cruise line, even if you're on a civilian ship, 
you may experience the worst that war can offer. It's important for us to realize this as well. See, I believe that many of us have been duped into believing that, that everything is honky-dory. I'm never gonna say that again. All right, I'm never saying that again. But every, we're, we're duped to believe that everything is just peachy and fine and that, and that we're just biding time until we get to heaven. And, and while I'm not trying to cause alarm or overwhelming panic, I don't believe God wants us to live in a state of panic. We believe that the fruit of the Spirit, it's possible to have joy, but, but there is still a underlying current that we need to be fully convinced of, friends, and it's this. We are at war. We are at war. War for your souls, And while we believe in the firm grasp of Jesus over our lives, the reality is that the believer, even if you are a Christian, if you are not a Christian, you need to know Jesus. Let me just say that first and foremost. But if you know Jesus, you are still in a battle. Many times in Scripture, we we are reminded. I want to read a couple of passages to you to to see that there is this, this, this concept being taught in Scripture that we need to be ready, that we need to be fit and trained up and, and ready. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 62. But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not, what's that word? Fit for the kingdom of God. Anybody that puts their hand to the plow and looks back, what is he talking about? He's talking about things like nostalgia or, or, or second-guessing the direction that God is, is leading you towards. Anybody that puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit, meaning they are unfit for the kingdom of God. God's desire is that we would be a church that is fit. Everybody say fit. The, the title of my message this morning is Let's Get Fit. The second one, get fit, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Look what it says here. I'm just going to bring up a couple of examples that that have this idea that we need to get ready. Do you not know that in a race, everybody say race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Has anyone ever ran a race and didn't get the prize? Did anyone ever do like I did? running the uh, race for freedom one year, and you were like, man, I got 26 minutes, 5K, that's awesome. Then my wife had a kid, and a whole year later, it took me like 40 minutes, and just super devastated as to what had just happened. I was not fit to run that race. Just because I was fit at one point in time does not mean that that fitness carried over. Katie had a baby, and so I had something. (laughs) But the Bible tells us to run in such a way, get fit, right? I discipline my body. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, a couple verses later. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I, my, I myself might be disqualified. He's talking about being trained up, telling your body. Just He's not saying I'm, I'm competitive, I'm doing CrossFit. He's like, I'm gonna be fit for the cross, right? He's saying, he's saying like, like I, I, w- I wanna be fit for Jesus. So there is a responsibility that we see over and over again in Scripture in the Old Testament, also in the, or in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 144, verse one. Look what, the, look what David says about the Lord. He says, praise be to the Lord, my rock, who, what? Trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. I love that David, David was being very specific with what he was talking about. He's saying the smallest aspects of my body. Now, it, like usually if we're going to battle, we're gonna do some curls, you want that bicep, right? Like, like you, you, want, you want to do some, some squats, you want to be able to be limber. 
but he's saying this, the Lord, who is my rock, trains me completely, head to toe, does not want me to overlook any aspect of my spiritual body, so my hands and my fingers are even ready for battle. God wants us to be a people that are fit. We, unfortunately, I believe some have bought into the lie that the Christian faith is a cakewalk, that everything is peachy and perfect. But I'm here to tell you that scripture sounds an alarm telling us that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. Against what? Against who? Where? We're going to get to that this morning. Turn with me, if you will, the, the, the text for our series for the next couple of weeks, next seven weeks, Ephesians chapter 10. I'm cha- <laughs> You're like, what? Chapter six, starting in verse 10. Ephesians chapter six, var- <laughs> people are like, I don't got that one, pastor. It's in my Bible. Ephesians chapter six, verse 10 through 13. Now, if you remember over a year ago now, or about a year ago now, this weekend actually, I just, I, I did, the, or I looked at my preaching calendar. A year ago, we uh, went through the, the series Ephesians, right? And, and we spent 12 weeks through the book of Ephesians. And it was really long, but it was really awesome. And I loved it. I, we went verse by verse, and we went through chapters one, two, three, four, five. And then when we got to chapter six, I stopped at verse nine, and I said, okay, I know this is the moment you've been waiting for, because if you've been in church for longer than 10 minutes, you know about the armor of God, and you're just like, the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and you start like just reminiscing of like Sunday school days where you just like had sword fights with, with uh, paper towel rolls, right? Like, like you're reminiscent of that, but I said, I, I want us to pause, and we're going to pick this up this year, and we're picking it up now. So I, I believe that scripture is intended to be read in context and be taught in context, and, and there is a reason for why Paul has the armor of God in there. And I want to talk about that this morning. So in Ephesians, I want to give you a quick summary of the letter to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul actually breaks up the letter to the the Ephesians in a beautiful way, brilliantly. It's It's six chapters long, and the first three are all about ways you should think, your theology, and chapters... Four, five, and six are all about ways you should behave. So one, two, three, ways you should think. Four, five, six, ways you should behave. In chapter one, he says this, that, that we should be people, we should be people that understand this. If you know God, it's because God chose you first. If you know God, you didn't just look under a rock and say, hey, you were here the whole time. I found you, God. No, if you know God, it's because he found you first. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter one, verse four and five. It says, for he chose us. In him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Now, if you are someone who leans towards Arminianism, leans towards free will, which I am one of those, um, you see the word predestination, and you're just like, and you start like running away, and you close the Bible, and you say, not in my Bible, and you scratch it out. Because we have this idea that Calvinism, this idea that the Lord can predestine people and and Arminianism can't go hand in hand. But did you know this? If you take a step back, even before uh, Calvinism was a thing, the church was able to perfectly balance both of them. There was not this, you're this or that. They understood that the Lord is sovereign. Everybody say the word sovereign. Meaning the Lord is still in control and yet he still gives us free will. His full control does not impede on our free will and our free will does not supersede his sovereignty. 
Now, I don't believe predestination means that the Lord has already decided, that's a key word, has decided that you're going to heaven and you're going to hell. I believe that is conflicting with the character of God and even with scripture. But I do believe this, the Lord does know who will go to heaven and who will not be there. But his foreknowledge does not mean he is the one who said this is what's gonna happen. He knows all things. He knows who will choose him. And yet he still loves all of us that he can say, for I so love the world, I so love the world that I will give my only begotten son. And that his desire, the reason why he hasn't returned is because scripture says that God is so patient with us. This is how much he loves us, even though he knows the beginning from the end. He is so patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but to have eternal life in Christ Jesus. So chapter one talks about the sovereignty. If you know Jesus, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, my My good news to you, my encouragement to you is that it is God's desire for you to know Jesus this morning. His desire is that you would come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, that that he, I would even argue to say this, that if you are here this morning, I would hope and pray that you would see that he, he desires to be in relationship with you. He desires that, that you would make that decision to say, Lord, I'm yours and I'm turning away from my sin and from myself. But if you know Jesus... It's because he chose us. That's good news. He chose you, friend. When you feel the lowest of the lows, when you feel like you're disposable, you have been chosen by God Almighty. That is some great news. Chapter two moves on from the sovereignty of God, talks about uh, the fact that we were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in sin, but because of God's grace, we are now alive in Christ who unites all people in himself. I love this passage. Look what it says, Ephesians 2, chapter, verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were, what's that word? Dead in transgressions. We were dead in sin. You weren't just sick in sin. You were dead in sin, completely uh, alienated from the life that God desires. And yet, while you were in that situation, while you were in that position, when that was the current status of your personal disposition, Jesus came and made you alive in Christ Jesus. And it is by his grace that you have been saved. He has not only chosen us, but he has made every means possible to save us. It says there that remember that at that time, verse 12, you were separate from Christ. You were separated. There was a chasm of separation between you and Jesus. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. The Lord worked with Israel in Israel alone. There was no other nation that the Lord was working with so specifically. And if you weren't an Israelite, you weren't in the covenantal promises of God, but the Lord knew from the very beginning that he would use a people that were not. If you remember the origins of Israel, they had none. God created them. He took Abraham and made them. So the Lord made a people to say, you will be the conduits to bring my blessing to the entire world. So it's not about nationalism. It's not about a specific citizenry. It's literally that God has stepped down, made a people that were not there so that he can bring all people into relationship there. And this is what Paul is saying. He is saying this, you were separated from that, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, 
the dividing wall of hostility. So not only does God bring us to himself and make one people out of two people, Jews and Gentiles, who are the Jews? We know that. Who are the Gentiles? Everybody else. He has brought the two groups together, removing any type of hostility or barrier. He's removed the barrier between him and us and us and others. So the barriers that our society still tries to place on people, I don't like you because of the color of your skin, the gender, your political affiliation, all those barriers that we place up in society, Christ has come to demolish them down and say, you are my people. That is good news this morning. We don't have to live like the world wants us to live. We don't have to live in the constant chaos that we see on CNN and Fox News that everything is happening and everything is crazy and that everyone is divisive. We have hope that Jesus has come to restore and build unity. This is good theology. It's through him and him alone. We can't do enough in the community. We can't do enough projects in the community to develop relationship. It needs to be Jesus. It needs to be Christ. Chapter three, you can approach God. This is the third point of theology that Paul brings up. You can approach God and learn of his deep love for you. Ephesians three, verse 12, it says this, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Thank you, God, that I don't have to go into your presence wondering if you even want me there. But because of Jesus, we can now, you can now enter into the promise in the pro, or the presence of God with confidence and freedom. That is good news. That's good theology. Thank you, God. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts and through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. Those are the three theological points that Paul brings up in the first three chapters of Ephesians. That he is sovereign. That he has chosen us. He, he, he loves us enough to make us right when we were dead in sin, dead in our transgressions, and that he has united people. And then the third one that we just read is that we can now approach God, not because of our good works, but because of Jesus. And we can do so with freedom and confidence. And Paul, the masterful writer who is being carried by the Holy Spirit, moves from theology and orthodoxy to very sound practical advice. Chapters four, five, and six are all about how you should practice this Christian faith. Chapter four, he says this, how should we live for God? The first thing that he brings up in chapter four now after receiving all this theology, chapter four says this, stay united and be mature so the church grows in every way. Man, the church can hear that this morning. Stay united so that you can be mature and grow in every single way. Your lack of unity, your, your divisive heart that is so easily brought, toward, brought out is part of the reason why you don't experience the growth in the Christian walk. When you backbite and when you grumble and complain and, and look for reasons and get easily offended by things, you are stifling the growth that God has for you. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Instead, this is what you should be doing instead of dividing, he says. Instead, speak the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We're called to stay united. And how do we stay united? He says, love. Chapter five, he says this. If you ever read chapter five, it talks all about staying pure and not giving yourself to sexual immorality and, and don't be a swindler and, and don't be a thief and don't, like all these different things that we should not. And, and if you've ever heard a sermon out of chapter, Ephesians chapter five, you likely heard the whole list of how not to behave. But you can talk about morality till you're blue in the face. That's never gonna change a heart. That will never change a thing. So, so although morality is important and God does call us to lives of holiness, just saying I want to be a holy person and I'm, and I'm gonna try to work harder does not cut it. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, he says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do you become a person who lives more moral or holier? Is it by self-discipline and doing all these different tactics, those, those, those are helpful, but they are not gonna bring the holiness that pleases God. The only way your holiness can be pleasing to God is if it is sprung off of the launch pad of love, love for Jesus and love for people. Amen. You see, the Pharisees were holy. They struggled with hypocrisy from time to time. But by and large, the, the general group of the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking down to were holy. They didn't eat certain things. They didn't do certain things. They didn't wear certain clothes. And, and even tie, the Bible says that, that even you tie the, 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 the peppermints and, and things like that that you have. Like you give a tenth of the mint that you have, and yet that's not enough. They were so holy. But why were they not holy in the eyes of God and only in the eyes of man? their heart. It wasn't coming from a place of love for God. So Ephesians 5, although it talks about holiness, and then it needs to come from a place that says, Lord, this is for you. You're doing this in me and through me. My love for you and my love for Jesus. In chapter, at the end of chapter 5 and in the beginning of chapter 6, Paul begins to talk about the roles of the family. He gets super specific, and he starts bringing up everybody's role that they work in, in the body of Christ. Uh, he, he brings up men or husbands and wives, and he brings up children and fathers and, and even brings up slaves and masters. Now, I want to be very clear here. Sometimes when people read this passage, if you ever know anybody who's not a believer and they're against the Bible, they don't think it's authoritative or uh, anything good, they'll, they'll bring up something in Ephesians 6 and say, why would I ever trust a document that is pro-slavery? The Bible is not pro-slavery. Paul was writing in a time that was dealing with slavery. It was a custom. It was a norm. In fact, the slavery of the ancient Near East did not look anything like what we are accustomed to in our American Western mindset. It was completely different. If you owned anybody a debt, you would sell yourself to them and say, hey, I want to pay this off. Like, uh, I bought these Jordans. I couldn't afford them. Can I, uh, can I work for you, Nike? And they'd be like, sure, pal. You're our slave now. You're our servant, a bond servant. So the Bible's not pro-slavery. If we were going to translate that to mean today, we would say uh, a, a good translation would be an employer and an employee. And the beautiful thing about this all, can I just say this? It's not in my notes, but 
the Bible is, Christianity is very liberating. People think that, the, that Christianity is, is all about rules and the moment you come to Christ and then your freedoms are gone and this and that and it's a bunch of rules that you gotta follow. Listen, Christianity is in very empowering and liberating, why? Because when Jesus was around and when Paul was writing this, society only cared about men. It was a, it was a man's world, right? James Brown, like he should have been around then because it would have been perfect. It was a man's world back then. And if you were a woman or a child, or a slave, you were not even a full citizen, second class, couldn't vote, had no freedoms, and yet the church is the first one to address every member of society, saying the walls of division that were once up in Christ, they are gone, and we are all one and equal in Jesus, so I will address the husbands, and I will address the wives, and I will address the children, and I will address the parents, and I will address the slave, and I will address the the master of that slave, because we are all one in Christ, and you know what the revolving theme of that entire portion is? It's found here, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit yourself to them. What does submission mean? Bending the knee and saying, let me lift you up. Everyone's meant to submit themselves to each other. It looks differently and it plays out in different roles, but we are all called to do everything in a heart of submission. We are living in a culture that the moment you say that wives are meant to submit to their husbands, you you better be careful. You better walk around like this because you're going to get smacked in the face. But biblical submission looks way different than what the world tries to say it is. It's not a demeaning husband who has his thumb pressing on his wife and speaks over her and degrades her and demeans her and his children. That is not biblical leadership. You need to get beat up. Let me catch you talking to your wife that way, seriously. You're like, Pastor, you're weak. Don't worry about it, all right? But seriously, Scripture is empowering. It's empowering. We're called to submit to each other. And you think Paul could end his passage there. You think he could bring up all those different things. He could bring up great sound theology and he can bring up great practical steps to be a good follower of Jesus, but he understands something. He understands this. Paul drives home his entire text in a masterful way. If the first three parts of this amazing letter were about how we should think, and if the last three chapters are about how we should live, Paul understands something that that we may misunderstand or miss altogether, and it's this, that the Christian life is not simply about adopting good theology. It's not about practically applying the right ways to live. No, in this world, the only way we can think right or live right is if it's done with the power of God. So in context, when Paul is bringing up the armor of God, he is saying, because you have seen all of these things that I have brought up, you need to understand something. In order to live those out, in order to live to that theology, in order to live to that practical theology, that that orthopraxy, if if you are going to do those things successfully, if you are not going to be someone who is sexually immoral, if you are not going to be someone who is a drunk, if you are not going to be someone who is a swindler and a thief and a complainer and and, and, and a groaner, You need something. You don't need to work harder. You need the power of God to empower you for those things. And that's why he brings up what I want to read and conclude with this morning. We're going to spend the next seven weeks dissecting this passage verse by verse, but I want to read Ephesians 10, 
verses, chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. Did it again. <laughs> finally, be strong in the Lord. Everybody say, finally. 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 Whew, some of you are like, finally, pastor. <laughs> Pretty much preached Ephesians again. I did. You're better for it. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, the conclusion to my entire letter, Paul is saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He is not saying, finally, now that you've heard all the things that you're supposed to do, work harder. He's saying this, finally, trust more. Lean in more. Trust the strength of God. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Notice that the, the subject is Jesus. The subject is, is God. He is where we receive all of our power from. If you are trying to live this Christian walk without Jesus as your strength, you're not going to go very far. You are headed off a cliff of disappointment. You need Jesus. I need Jesus, friends. Our kids, our families, our neighbors need Jesus. And he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's reminiscent of the old days. Paul is being smart here. He's alluding to what Joshua was told by the Lord. What did the Lord tell Joshua as he was about to enter into the, the promised land, into Canaan? He said, be strong and courageous. I'll be with you. Be strong and courageous. And now Paul is alluding to that and saying, so church, be strong and courageous in the Lord. Be strong and courageous in the Lord. We too why would, why would Paul bring that up? Because Paul understands something. Just like the Israelites leaving Egypt and entering into the promised land, we too are a modern-day generation of ex-slaves who were once bound by slavery. We are traveling through the wilderness of life, and we are on the brink of inheriting the promises that were afforded to us by Jesus. And we are tasked as we cross over to that promised land. We are tasked to live faithfully for God and to do so in his strength. I am thankful that I serve a God who not only brings me a list of commands, but gives me every tool necessary to fulfill them. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the armor that we need to stand up. And look what he says here. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Friends, we are at a war and the Bible tells us that this war, look what it says in the next verse, for our struggle, everybody say struggle. Struggle is putting it lightly. Struggle in the Greek meant more like a, a trapped animal trying to come out for life. Like if there's a noose around the neck, they're fighting to get out of that. that, that that's the imagery that is given. So not struggle like you're struggling to pay your bills. Like this is a struggle. This is a struggle. Everybody say the struggle is real. We are in a war zone. And God has sounded the alarm and has said, we are in battle. I, I, I don't mean to disrupt your lunch plans, but we are in battle. And it's not against your grouchy boss or the people in your household or your neighbor. We are in a battle that is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Amen. Listen, I, what I don't want to happen, I, I, I would identify myself as someone who leans towards Pentecostal theology and practice, 
But oftentimes what I've seen abused in that movement is that everything ends up being a demon. You get indigestion. Oh, that, that devil gave me indigestion. No, bro, you're eating tacos like at 10 o'clock at night. Stop. Not everything's a demon. But far be it from us to say there is no demonic influence. Even while we are here, the devil is trying to disrupt, cause you to be a cynic, discourage, distract. He is a thief and a liar. And we are not going to be a church that talks more about the devil than we do about Jesus. Listen, the best weapon against the devil is Jesus. If you believe, if you believe that there is this yin-yang or this, this dualism, what am, I, what am I talking about? Like that the devil and Jesus are equals, you are, you are living a lie, my friend. Jesus and the devil are not equals. Jesus has no equal. There is no other. There's no greater power. Everything submits to the feet of Jesus. That means every bondage, every addiction, every oppressive thought and moment and encounter, anxiety, stress, that submits to the feet of Jesus. But we need to put on the armor of God. That we're going to talk about every piece in the next weeks to come, but the main thing we need to understand right now, the one takeaway, the big idea for us this morning is to understand we are in a spiritual battle and that we would pray to have eyes to see what the Lord wants us to see. That we would be people that take our stand and say, we're not backing down. We're dressing head to toe as you prepare us, God, for the war that we are facing. We will use the name of Jesus as much as we can and we will use the word of God as much as we can. Oh, now I'm getting to the, into the actual sort of the word. Anyway, let's keep going. He says this, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, now he's not talking to one specific day. He's talking about whenever a, a, a situation arises. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to end with this before we jump into baptisms. Yes. Let me end with this. Earlier in January or at the end of the year, last year, I had some very bad um, anxiety. And if, if you know me personally, if you're, if, you know, if you're my wife, and you know that I am not someone who's ever battled with anxiety. If anything, I need to take things a little more serious. Anxiety has never been a thing for me. But in December, I was just, something was happening to me. Like my heart was constantly racing and I was always thinking about things and I couldn't sleep and I was going through some just crazy things and I couldn't address it. I didn't know what was happening. I, I, I'd go to church and my heart just I went to staff meeting one day. Actually, I finished having breakfast with someone in our church and even at breakfast, my heart was just racing. I go back home, I lay down and I'm just like, Kate, I'm not feeling the best. I don't know if it's the coffee or the caffeine or what. Maybe someone just put a, a shot of espresso in that. I'm just like, I'm feeling off or something. But I'm going go to I'm gonna go to church because we got staff meeting. I went to staff meeting and we're meeting in my office, the staff and I, and, and I'm just talking. And I'm like, guys, you got you to gotta forgive me. I, I'm feeling a little dizzy right now. I'm like, what's going on, pastor? I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm going to go to the doctor. And they're like, yeah, get out of here. Go, go take care of yourself. Whatever you got to do. We went to the doctor and I'm like, doctor, take my, take my blood pressure. Put some, some things on my heart. Like, even if you put things on, whatever you got to do, take some tests because I know there's something wrong taking all these tests and they came to the conclusion that there was nothing wrong with my body 
And then I was like, that's not right. Like, I feel my heart racing right now. Take, take, my, take my pulse right now. Like, seriously, take it right now. And they took it. And they're like, dude, your, your heart is 60 beats per minute. Like, there's no, you're fine. And then she asked this question. And sometimes the Lord will use people who may not even be Christians to speak a prophetic word to you. And she said, do you, are you struggling with anxiety? Do you have too much on your plate right now that you need to, to hand off? Or are, are there things you can do? And, and, and I was working so hard at that time that like, we're in the middle of a building campaign and all these different things happening that I didn't even think that I was working too hard. And, and I was struggling with anxiety. And the doctor came and she wrote me a prescription for, for Xanax. And, and I want to be very clear here. There is nothing wrong with medication. There is nothing wrong with seeking clinical help and talking to counselors and seeking uh, psychotherapists, uh, you know, therapists. Nothing wrong with that at all. But when I received that prescription for Xanax, and if you're on Xanax, I'm not throwing you under the bus. This is me and the Lord, and I'm just telling you my story. The Lord gave this to me, or she gave this to me, and I heard the Holy Spirit. As she walked out of the room, the Holy Spirit spoke to me ever so clearly. You could use that, and it will help but only I can rid your anxiety. Only I can empower you to do the things that I'm calling you to do. And the devil would love for you to scale back now and not move forward in the change that I'm bringing to this church and to your family, which by the way, later on in the story, we adopted a daughter. Had I taken Xanax, I probably wouldn't have been able to like fast for that season. And if I would have never fasted, I would have never heard clearly from the Lord that we need to adopt a little girl. Come on, that's the Lord right there. That is the Lord right there. So I, so I decided to, to, to trust God. And since that moment, I have not had another panic attack. Not one. Not one. God has healed me of that. But the only way I knew that was because I was aware that there was a spiritual battle happening, uh, happening and that that anxiety was given or brought to me by the enemy. It was a spiritual attack, and I could only remedy it with spiritual weapons. Stand with me this morning if you can. And if those of you who are getting baptized, if you want to join me up front. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle. If you guys just want to line up with Pastor Kenny there, we'll get ready here in a second, but I, want, I don't want to leave this moment. We are in a spiritual battle. We can't pretend like we are on a cruise liner just enjoying life. Should we enjoy life? Yes. Does the Lord give us joy? Absolutely. Should we be happy people and people that are just flooded with, with this, the presence of God and joy and gladness? Absolutely. But also understanding that there is a battle taking place. And the weapons that we use aren't our own. And they're not fights against people. They're spiritual things happening. I'm going to pray over every single one of us that this week we would be able to identify the areas in our life that we need the armor of God, that we need to stand up so that Jesus can be shown as mighty warrior in our lives. Can I just pray over you real quick? And can you receive this prayer in the name of Jesus? Father, Lord, let, let us not be people who demystify what is reality. Two extreme errors that we can be walking into is that everything is demonic and that there is a spirit everywhere. And that's not what you want for us. Nor is our plate supposed to look like people who de 
deny the actual existence of anything supernatural. So Father, I just pray right now that everyone under the sound of my voice, whether they're listening here or on podcast, Father, that they would experience your presence so that they can identify and clearly hear your word that what they are facing is or is not demonic in origin. But Father, I pray that we would stand resolved to put on the full armor of God and that every week as we continue this series forward, as we look at every single piece of our armor, may we attach it to ourselves so mightily and so readily. Father, the the main point for us this morning that we want to just resonate in our hearts is that you are our everything, that we can't follow good theology or good practice unless we understand that you are the one that fights for us, that you are our power and our strength. So we submit to that. And as the weeks to come, as we dive into this text, help us, assist us, empower us, encourage us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand as we transition to baptisms this morning.